0: Hello, and welcome to episode 70 of the Play DNA podcast. I'm Cassandra. I'm Damon. I'm Sarah. Welcome back, everybody. And let's talk about
1: the games we played this week. Sure. So, I um, had a little game night on Saturday, the previous Saturday, and we played Skull King a couple times. It's a betting, trick taking game. Pretty fun, but frustrating because it, it's really hard to know what to bet. So,. But everyone seemed to enjoy it. It's got a pirate theme and we played a, a, another pirate game called Loot. So Loot is another Reiner Canizia game. I guess I didn't really know he designed it, but it's years and years and years ago. And you kind of battled different ships to get gold and stuff. So that was fun. I you had a pirate weekend. Sort of. And then we played Babylonia. Uh, this is a area control game. Also by Reiner Kinesia. There are
2: no games I'm- by Reiner Knizia. There are only games not by Reiner Knizia. <laughs> it
1: certainly <laughs> seems like it. Um, Babylonia is great. You get these little wooden chips, and it's just an interesting area control game. You can go for these things called ziggurats, or you can go for farming areas. Or It's, it's a pretty fast game, actually. The box says 60 minutes, but we were able to play it in like 30 each time, so...
0: Oh, are, yeah, are you I'd sure you weren't playing it. it wrong? Yeah,
2: sixty German minutes should be about two hours. Yeah,
1: absolutely. Time. We were not playing it wrong. We played it a couple times, and <laughs> if if people are efficient with their moves, it doesn't take that long to play. Oh, okay. it was it was really really fun. I, I'd highly recommend Babylonia. It's beautiful too. Like the, the box is beautiful. It's just great to stare at. Good piece of good box. <laughs> yeah, those cool. are the ones I played that are new, newer. Well.
0: The only thing we played because we're recording a little bit earlier than we usually do is uh, Trial by Trolley, which you taught us. Yeah, Um, and it's it it was fun. Like I would say that it's it's in the vein of Cards Against Humanity, but of all of those of all of that genre, this is maybe the the best of them that I've played because it wasn't like it wasn't designed to hurt people and. It was kind of clever, and so I liked it. And other than that, we just we've been working on building one of Damon's games um, that required stickering three hundred separate tiles. So oh. <laughs> we were doing that for for a lot of time.
1: <laughs> it Took a, a good long time. It's done that. I can't imagine. So now we
0: just have to start playtesting. All right. So uh, I'm going to talk today about about games and and kind of like when and how and why we play them. Um, specifically games and why we might play them in difficult times or times of distress, um, historical times of distress or just distressing times in our lives. Um, I know if I think about why I play games... I think a lot about escapism and like the social experience. So I play games to just kind of experience an escape from my everyday life and indulge in this magic circle, which has kind of the good kind of stress. So it's like an exciting stress, but it's not a stress that actually is contingent upon something that's super important in the real world. It's a great way to socialize. Um, I don't know. Why do you guys play games usually? Escape,
1: probably, just like you. It helps me forget about my problems for a while, and it's also engaging and fun, so. Yeah. It helps me de-stress. Yeah. So.
2: I don't have anything to escape. I just like to learn things.
1: You like to learn things, yeah. Um, and, and
0: escapism is a huge part of why people play games. Um, so kids participate in in escapism too, but also, like, kids, they function in a different way, and and they do things for different reasons. So kids don't have jobs, right? Um, Especially young kids, they really don't have that much to think about as far as responsibilities go. So playing is their job. And sometimes it's hard to remember that with children because we're humans and we don't think about... I don't know, I feel like people don't tend to think about humans as animals or like they don't tend to think about why... Children might do what they do or, like, how development works. But if you're a person who has animals, if you've ever had a kitten or a puppy or any kind of small animal, it's a lot more obvious that playing is their job, right? So, like, we foster kittens, and when the kittens are playing, it's like, oh, obviously, they're learning how to hunt. Like, they're learning how to pounce. They're learning how to use their claws and when not to use their claws. Like, playing is obviously... The way that they're learning and it's their job and they take it very seriously (laughs) um and so for children oftentimes play is kind of the safe space for them to work through their stressors or to figure things out and they actually have a tendency to confront their greatest challenges through play rather than avoiding them Um, so that's what i'm going to talk about i'm just going to talk about how games and play help both children and adults who might be going through distressing situations. Um, So first of all, I'm gonna talk a little bit about games in therapy, because play therapy is a thing. And play therapy doesn't always involve board games, but um, sometimes it does, and it involves uh, games, it involves play of various kinds, role-playing, all sorts of things. So um, games are a great way for therapists to gauge a child's ability and desire to follow rules to reason, to cooperate, to process negative feelings if they're losing. Games also create trust. So it's a great way to loosen a person up to talk about, you know, intimate emotions or experiences, and games are also familiar territory for everyone. So it's there's like this automatic comfort in going through the motions of a game. Uh, It's not super challenging if you walk into somebody's office and it's really intimidating and there's this authoritative figure that you don't know and they're like, hey, why don't we sit down and play, you know, the game of life? It's like, oh, thank goodness. And there's just a little bit of relief that comes with that and doing something that that you're familiar with. Um, Also, uh, when you're playing a game and you're a child and you're playing with an adult, it brings you up to the same level as the adult. It evens out the power dynamic, which is pretty important. Um, And whether an adult or child, both players have to play by the same rules and it just creates this comfortable environment. So um, all of these are reasons that therapists might use games with children or with younger clients. Um, On top of all that, play therapy is super useful because there's a communication gap between children and adults. So children might be able to speak and we might be able to listen to them and we might think we understand them. but Being able to speak is not exactly the same as being able to express. And uh, so the ability to express unique emotions or situations is not fully developed. Um, They're much more capable of expressing using games and props and play. And those, because those are the skills that they're working on, right? Those are the things that they're dealing with every single day. So play therapy might involve role-playing uh, storytelling using puppets or blocks or any other type of prop that will provide an avenue for expression. Um, and I was thinking about the fact that they kind of keep using um, in in small ways. I feel like our middle school used play therapy for us. Like, do you remember in middle school when you had to do like little role plays about bullying or role plays about harassment or like saying no to drugs? I don't know if. If you guys did this, but I did this in middle school, we had to do these little plays about like, what do you do if somebody offers you a cigarette? You're like, no, thank you. And you have to like, act out this little play. I feel like it's kind of along the same lines.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I remember the dare thing doing that maybe once.
0: Yeah, and um, play yeah. Fa- play therapy isn't necessarily only for children either. It is sometimes used with adults in a variety of situations, um, especially when there's trauma or mental disability involved. Um, so board games are also used uh, with... Uh, Among people who interview and research unaccompanied refugee children, so children who are arriving into a new country with no family, no plans for the future, no stability, like they're just completely 100% lost and they likely fled from a really difficult situation in their home country. Um, You can imagine how difficult that would be and they probably wouldn't want to talk to a stranger about anything about their situation and what they fled and um, these kids have no reason to open up to people. And so a lot of the people who work uh, in these nonprofits that work with these kids, they often use games to both help loosen them up and get them comfortable, but also provide them with games as an a way of expression, as a means of expression um, that'll create kind of a lower stakes way to process the situation and to express what they're experiencing. Um, It's kind of like it's a conversational lubricant the same way as alcohol is for a lot of people.
1: Mm.
0: As far as adults go, um, adults will actually use games to process difficult situations too sometimes. So there was this great article in the Wall Street Journal uh, about risk. And it was about risk being the favorite game of Syrians, um, both those still inside of the country and communities of Syrian refugees. So the Syrian conflict has been going on for a really long time. Um, About half a million people have died. And there are many powers involved in this conflict, and they're all vying for some type of control uh, over Syria and many Syrians find that the game risk really mirrors what they're actually experiencing. And, you know, at a certain level, you would think, oh, well, if that's the case, somebody who's experiencing war might not want to be constantly reminded of war. But counterintuitively, they love it. Like, they want to play this game that is specifically about this thing that they are personally experiencing. So risk has become a huge hobby in Syria. Um, There are multiple firsthand stories about people fleeing the country with nothing but clothes and their copy of risk. Like, that's how important it is to them. Um, The Wall Street Journal article also had an interview with a guy whose friends had made him a risk birthday cake. Um, It's just extremely popular. They love playing this game. And um, each of the colors in the game has been assigned meaning, uh, meanings that are relevant to the current conflict that Syria faces. So the blue pieces represent the United Nations, and black pieces are the Islamic State. Red pieces are the Syrian regime, and the Free Syrian Army are the green pieces, and apparently everybody wants to be the green pieces because (laughs) those are the people that they really want to win. Mm -hmm. And uh, this article is really interesting, and I'll I'll link it in the podcast notes, but um, a lot of people are saying that while they're playing the game, they're kind of talking through their frustrations and fears and hopes regarding the conflict and what they've experienced personally. Um, And it's kind of like this weird, like, fun therapy session where it just makes it easier to talk about the conflict in a lot lower stakes way that's less political and more fun and more like based on hope and what you're expecting or what you're hoping will happen. Um, and it can be really encouraging to experience a win uh, in the game, even if it's a fake win. <laughs> you know, it's, it's a good way to kind of process things and, um, and talk about the conflict in a low stakes way. Um, I thought that that article was super cool. Um, Going back in history, we always want to talk about Monopoly, right? Everybody loves Monopoly. It just keeps on popping up on these historical episodes. But um, Monopoly, originally known as the Landlord's Game, uh, was relatively well-known and widespread in the 1910s and 20s. But during the Great Depression, its popularity absolutely exploded. And, um, of course, if you think about what Monopoly is about it's definitely escapism, right? It's it's about acquiring wealth and buying real estate and all these things that people couldn't do during the Depression. Um, but there was a surprising aspect to this, too. So people really didn't have money to go out. Um, Monopoly was pretty cheap to buy, and it provided this consistent entertainment. Um, but even if people couldn't afford to buy a copy of the official Monopoly game from a store, there were tons of bootleg copies and they were extremely popular. Um, And these bootleg copies were localized. And they would actually change the names of all the properties to reflect their own neighborhoods and their own streets and important buildings. And um, this is kind of interesting because then it's no longer escapism, right? It's just about your own your own world and the world that you're experiencing. So there was a version of Monopoly that was played during the Holocaust uh, in at least one Jewish transit c- camp in the Czech Republic. And the game was called Ghetto. And it has been shown in various Holocaust museum exhibitions of toys and games that children played during that time. Um, so the story of the game Ghetto is is actually super sad. Um, <laughs> And uh, we only know about it because of this gentleman named Dan Glus, and he lived in this ghetto in the Czech Republic, and uh, it was a transit camp for Jews who would eventually be transferred to concentration camps. And uh, this was a monopoly knockoff. It was one of the knockoffs um, that was designed to reflect ghetto life and help explain the situation to children. So, not like, not escapism at all, really. It was more of a a teaching tool and a way for, you know, adults to talk to their children about the situation. Um, So, this particular game, this one copy of the game, was passed from child to child. And when the child and their family got word that they were about to be transferred to a camp, they would pass the game on to the next family. So this happened over many years. Um, Dan Glus was seven years old when he received it, and he ended up being the final owner of the game. And uh, he was the one who shared it with museums, and that's the only reason we know about the game. So adults in these ghettos were also playing games, um, but theirs were, were very much designed for escapism. They were trying to forget their worries. They were trying to forget everything that was going on in the world, um, trying to find a way to take a psychological break. There were accounts of people who traded food for chessboards or cards because that's how important that escape was. And uh, parents would actually really try and create this escape for children as well. They would make these makeshift playgrounds and try to play traditional children's games with them. But children... They work in a different way. They wanted to play in ways that mirrored the world around them. So their games tended to be extremely violent. They would pretend to slaughter each other or steal clothes off of dead bodies, steal food. Um, These games were really dark. And um, even when they were sent to concentration camps, children would continue to play and they would be really, really dark games because – That's what they needed. They needed play to process things. But the play never stopped, um, which I think is just really interesting to think about like how important play is. Play doesn't come out of joy, play comes out of necessity, um, which I don't think a lot of people realize. So there's this book called uh, Children and Play in the Holocaust, and here's a little excerpt out of it, which I think is. Really interesting. Um, Children bring the realities of their world into a fictional context where it is safe to confront them, to experience them, and to practice ways of dealing with them. Some people fear that violent play creates violent adults, but in reality, the opposite is true. Violence in the adult world leads children, quite properly, to play at violence. How else can they prepare themselves emotionally, intellectually, and physically for reality? The children must and will prepare themselves for the real world to which they must adapt to survive. So um, the, that kind of play that I was talking about, the, you know, pretending to, to kill or steal, um, this is a type of inappropriate play that is super common among children in extreme situations. Um, you can see examples of this. All over the world historically, um, similar play was seen among slave children um, in war zones all over the world.
2: So how would you justify cops and robbers or cowboys and Indians, one of which is a simulation of stealing and the other one is a simulation of warfare?
0: How would you justify them?
2: Yeah. Among white non-slave children in the United States.
0: I don't think it's a justification of anything. I think it's just... You
2: said it was an inappropriate play. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Is
2: that inappropriate play?
0: Uh, If they've learned to play cops and robbers from their parents. I don't
2: think that ever has happened in history.
0: (laughs) Well, what do you mean by justify?
2: Well, either it's inappropriate or it's not inappropriate. It can't be both.
0: Inappropriate play is not necessarily inappropriate. It's only inappropriate because adults will look at them and say, why are you playing like that? That horrifies us. And um, I think the point is that children are going to play however they feel like they need to play to prepare themselves for the world that they're actually inside of. So if their parents are drug dealers, then they're going to play games that involve dealing drugs because that's the world that they experience. If they live in a neighborhood with a lot of police activity or a lot of shooting, they're going to play games that involve shooting and involve police one way or another because that's the only way that they can prepare themselves.
2: But that's inappropriate or not inappropriate?
0: I don't think it's inappropriate. The The word inappropriate only means it's inappropriate. It seems inappropriate to an adult. Like as far as society goes, it is inappropriate. To, like, walk into somebody's room and say, hey, do you want to play a game where I shoot you and you bleed to death on the street? Um, That's pretty inappropriate. But also, it's only inappropriate because we as adults have these specific ideas about how children should play games. We don't think that the game should have any, like, depth or impact.
2: So it's inappropriate because it's specific to the actual region that they're in.
0: Yeah, Did there, do you it's, think their parents would
2: say it's inappropriate, or you would say it's only inappropriate because this researcher is in a completely different country?
0: I think it's in in this particular case they were talking about the Holocaust, right. and um, so children were seeing horrifying things happening. Parents didn't want their children to play games where they threw bodies into pits. That's not a game that that you would want to see your child playing because you love your child and you want them to have this innocent, you know, childhood and you want them to play fun games that you remember playing as a child, but that's not what they're going to do. They're going to they're going to play games that make sense based on what they experience in the world around them. That's all it means by inappropriate. I did not choose the word inappropriate. <laughs> and I don't think that this researcher chose the word inappropriate to say she herself thought it was inappropriate. It's just this is the kind of play that will shock people because it's not what you expect from a child and it's not what you want to see in a child but it is what they do because that's the way they survive. Um but anyway, I um I just I thought all this was pretty interesting just because it expresses how important games are to humans. Um and and to human learning and to human development just as a means of expression and self-therapy and yes, escapism, but um Yeah, sometimes it's hard to remember that games are not only born out of happiness or leisure time, they are an actual necessity to us developing and growing up and expressing ourselves. So that was a little bit of a bummer of an episode. I thought it was fascinating. (laughs) But um, yeah, it's really interesting. Um, Just as Damon has said a few times before, uh, we are homo sapiens, but... um, there are some people who say we should be called homo ludus.
2: Homo
1: ludens.
0: Homo ludens because we are the ones that play. Because we, we play and play is so important to our
1: uh, human experience. I don't think kids know that they're doing it. Like my little nephew who loves to pretend he's a cop because his dad's a cop and like take down, you know, Iron Man with like, <laughs> you know, Captain Marvel or something. He doesn't know that he's doing that. It's just fun for him and he just that's just what kids do. Kind of like the kitties just play and they just doing it out of just because they know they don't know what they're doing. They just do it because it's in their instincts and it's in their DNA. It's entirely instinctual. It's
0: happening because it needs to happen. Just the way that your like stomach has to do things to digest food. It's like it's that necessary um to actually Mm -hmm. process what you're experiencing. Yeah. Um, Anyway, I will have links to a couple of my sources in the podcast notes below. If you are enjoying listening to the podcast, make sure you are subscribed and also uh, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps us uh, reach a broader audience. And with that, play safe, play often, and we'll see you next time.